Okay, welcome back to RUF. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Judges. It's in your Old Testament. Go to the beginning of your Old Testament, flip over a few books, and you'll find the book of Judges. We're going to be uh, in chapter 3 tonight. If this is your first time to RUF, I want to particularly welcome you. We're so glad you're here. Uh, and just know that there's way more to my job than Wednesday nights. Uh, what I would like more than anything is to get to know you. And so if you're new, please come introduce yourself. I'd love to get coffee, uh, get lunch, hear your story. Uh, so please uh, come up. We'd love to, I'd love to hang out with you sometime and get to know you. We've been studying the book of Judges, and we alternate between Old Testament and New Testament normally and RUF, depending on the semester. And what we've been learning through the book of Judges is this. It's a book about rebellious people, but also a book about God's relentless grace. What we're learning is that God's people aren't all that great. In fact, what we are going to see and have already seen is that sometimes they're every bit as wicked, even more wicked and evil than their enemies. But at the very same time, in light of all of that, God pursues His people with a relentless grace. He pursues His people with patience and love and perseverance. And what we are seeing over and over is that the gospel is over and over through the book of Judges because what we are seeing is that this book, on the one hand, looks at us every week and through the pages of this book, it tells us, cheer up, that we're a whole lot worse than we think. While at the very same time, it says, cheer up. God's grace is greater. God's patience is greater. God's love for us is greater than anything that we could ever imagine. So tonight we come to Judges chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 7 through 11. If you have a phone or a Bible or maybe the outline or text printed in front of you on the announcement sheet, you can follow along. This is God's Word. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sowed them into the hand of Cushan Rishathahim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan, Rishah, Thahim, eight years. But when people of Israel cried out, when they cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel, and he went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan, Rishah, Thahim, king of Mesopotamia, into, the, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan, Rishathahim. There it is again. I'm kind of tired of saying it, actually. <laughs> That's why you go to, I guess, uh, I don't know. Anyway, so the hand... So, so the land had rest for 40 years, and then Othniel, the, king, the son of Kenaz, died. This is God's word. In all of its crazy words, too. So let me pray. Father, uh, 
Son and Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. We need you. In and of ourselves, we can't understand the things that are on the pages of Scripture. And so come through your Holy Spirit and teach us and rebuke us and correct us and train us. Lead us to repentance. Uh, Father, and as we're going to study tonight, we pray that you would lead us to deep change in our lives. All of us, as we look at the things that are going on in our own hearts, all of us have places that we look to and say, we wish that were different. Or we wished uh, we could change this about ourselves. Father, give us the grace to do that. I pray that you would help us to lock on to something tonight that would give us hope. Show us Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. There's a man in the 18th century by the name of Samuel Johnson. Uh, He was a British writer, and he kept a journal. And some of his journal entries were recorded in specifically his attempts to wake up early in the morning and to pray. And as you're going to see as I read some of these journal entries, uh, he was not a morning person, and it's pretty obvious. Let me read a couple of these. 1738, he says, O Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth and sleeping in. Nineteen years later, 1757, another entry into his journal. O mighty God, enable me to shake off the sloth and redeem the time that has been spent in idleness and in sin. 1764, my purpose from this time on is to avoid idleness and to rise early to pray. 1765, this one is actually pretty funny. He said, I purpose to rise at 8 a.m. or earlier to pray because I shall not rise early because though that is not early, it will be much earlier than I now rise, which is two in the afternoon. (laughs) 1775, when I look, see, see if you don't feel this way. When I look back upon resolutions and improvements that I want to make, which have year after year been made and been broken, why do I yet try to resolve again? And then again in the entry, he resolves again to rise at 8 a.m. or earlier to pray. That was 10 years later, by the way. 1781, the last journal entry. 43 years after the first journal entry and three years before he dies. Listen to what he says. I will not despair. Help me, help me, O God. And he vows again to rise at 8 o'clock or sooner in order to pray. Can you relate to that? I mean, maybe it's not that specific issue for you. But every single one of us knows what that feels like, don't we? All of us, if we're honest, have things that we see in our lives that we long to change. And when we look at that thing year after year, week after week, it seems impossible, doesn't it? And maybe you walked into RUF tonight and you have things in your life that you long to be free from. You're sitting here and it seems like 
There are things in your life that you are white-knuckling, that you are holding so tight and that you can't seem to let go of. Or even worse, it seems like something's holding you tight and won't let go of you. And you long to be free from it. You see, deep down, all of us have these things that we wish were different. And maybe that's why you've been coming to RUF the past couple of weeks Or maybe this is your first time and that's why you came to something like RUF because you want to grow spiritually and you look at your life and you say, I wish this were different and I want to connect with God in a new way or reconnect with God and have the relationship with Him that I used to have. Whatever it is, we want to change. But here's the million dollar question, isn't it? How? How does that happen? How do we change the things in our lives and the things that won't let go of us and never leave us alone, the things that we wish were different? Well, there's lots of things that could be said, but this passage actually helps us and shows us how we change. And it says that we change three ways. By remembering, if you have an outline, you'll see it printed before you. By embracing. And thirdly, by looking. So let's look at those three things. Remember, embrace, and look. Let's look at number one, remember. Look at verse 7. It says, The people of God did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now remember, we talked about this a little bit last week. What was so evil that they were doing? Well, it tells us. Look again. They forgot the Lord their God. And when they forgot the Lord their God, they moved out and started serving the idols around him. Now here's something important for us to note. This doesn't mean that they didn't know the Lord, that they didn't know of him, and they didn't know the things that he had done. Every commentator and scholar will tell you when looking at this chapter that the people of God certainly did know God, and know the things that he had done for them. For example, they knew about the Exodus when God delivered his people out of slavery. They knew about the Red Sea when it parted. They knew about the story and how God had provided for them when bread was falling literally from heaven. And so it's not that they didn't know God. It was simply that they didn't care about him anymore. They didn't care about what he had done for them. They had lost sight of him. And what's interesting is if you go forward to the New Testament, write this down, look it up later. First, I'm sorry, 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 5 through 9. 2 Peter 1, 5-9. If you hang around me long enough, you will hear me talk about this passage, and many of you have already heard me talk about it before, but I love this passage because here's what it says. I'll sum it up. Peter is talking to a group of Christians. He's talking to a group of people who want to grow spiritually and change. They want to grow in character. And so Peter looks at them in that passage, and he says, you want to grow in holiness? You want to grow in kindness? You should grow in your love for one another. Grow in godliness. Grow in self-control. 
And then he goes and he says, if, in, in verse 9, he said, if you're not growing in those things, this is very important, if you're not growing in holiness and kindness and love and self-control, listen to what he says. He does not say to them, you just need to try harder then. Or you need to get up earlier and read your Bible more. That's not a bad thing. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, get with the program. Be better. You know what he says? He says, you need to remember better. Specifically, he says, if you're not growing in those things, you need to remember better. He says that you have lost sight And that you are nearsighted and blind and have forgotten. It's a literal quote from that chapter. And have forgotten that you have been cleansed from your past sins. In other words, he says, if you're not growing, it's because you have forgotten the gospel. The reason why your life is such a mess and falling apart, Peter says, it's because that you have forgotten what is true. And so we see this very clear connection all throughout the Bible, and it's this. It's that there is a relationship and a connection between your memory and your life. And what's interesting, and one of the things I want us to see, particularly in Judges, is this was not an intentional forgetting. Okay, so the people of God didn't get up and say, hey, we're just going to forget about God this morning and we're totally going to turn our backs on Him, move Him to the back burner and forget about all the great ways and all the great things that He's done for us. No. It was very subtle. And it, was, it began with a consumption of other things. They were consumed with something else and then slowly but surely, God begins to fade to the background and fade to the rearview mirror. Think about it this way. My oldest daughter, her name is Kate. I love her. I know her. I was there at her birth. I've been with her every step of her life. She means more to me than anything in this world. But not too long ago, I noticed that Kate, when she would try to get my attention, by the way, I'm repenting of this, or trying to. I'm going to be honest with you here. Um, when she would try to get my attention, she would say, Daddy, 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 like a billion times, almost to the point to where it was obnoxious. You know, kind of like, whoa, you know, that's a little much. And so finally, and actually I knew the answer, sadly. But finally one day I said, Kate, why do you keep saying my name to get my attention? And she said, Daddy, that's the only way you'll pay attention to me. That's the only way I can get your attention. And see, what was happening is that Kate would walk in the room and she would ask me a question. Or she would try to get my attention. And I would ignore her. Because I was caught up in the glow of my iPhone. Now, did I intentionally forget Kate? 
No. I love her more than anything in this world. But in that moment, something else had captured me more than her. Something else moved to the foreground and moved her to the background. Something else had become more real to me at that moment. And so here's my question for you. What is that for you right now in your life? What is the thing in your life that has captured you in a way in actually taking God from the foreground of your life? This is a question you should write down and reflect on. In taking God from the foreground and actually moved Him to the background. You see, one of the dangers, I think, for us in this room, is not blatant atheism, though that is a danger that's very real and worth talking about, but I would say the, for most of us, the danger for us is that God somehow loses His luster and starts to slip off into the background because we suddenly become more captivated with being popular or being in socially, or academic success, or being more captivated with building our resume, or being more captivated with a dating relationship, so much so that God starts to slowly fade into the distance and ends up in the rearview mirror. And at first glance, we look at that and we're like, "Eh, that doesn't appear that dangerous and that's really not that big a deal, Jason. Look at the passage. It's a very big deal. Because look at what happens when they forgot God. When they forgot Him, they stopped growing and they started down a path of destruction. Did you know that is one of the reasons why we have RUF every single week? Every week on Wednesday nights, we come in here in the middle of our mess In the middle of our brokenness, anybody feel like their life is a mess? Yes, we come in the middle of our mess, in the middle of our fear, in the middle of our doubts, in the middle of maybe doing really, really good, and we come and we sing these old hymns put to new music, some of them hundreds of years old. We sing them to our own hearts and we sing them to one another. And there went my notes once again. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to go to a music stand. You know, I've been doing this for 10 years in the last two weeks. It's the only time in probably 250 sermons that that's happened, which is crazy. Um, so, I don't know what's going on. I don't know. Now I've got to get these back in order. Hold on. Hold on a second. Sorry, that was really awkward. Um, (laughs) All right, here we go. I I might officially have transitioned. Uh, All right, so, but, all right, here we go, here we go. (laughs) Thank you for being patient with me. But that's why we come here. 
And we sing these songs and we sing them to our own hearts and to one another and sing them back to God. That's why we come up and someone talks about Jesus from the Word. Why do we do that? To help us remember. To help remind us what is true. We live all week out in the world and we come, in a sense, to have our sanity restored on Wednesday nights. I love Martin Luther. The story of Martin Luther, one of the members of his church came up to him and says, when are we going to get past the Gospel? And Luther replied by saying, as soon as you stop forgetting it every single week. You see, that's why we come. Because on Wednesday nights, we want to remind ourselves of who God is and what He's done through the person of Jesus. That's the first thing. You want to grow, it starts with remembering. Secondly, embrace. Look at verse 8. The anger of the Lord was kindled against His people... And he sold them to their enemies. Now think about that. That's easy and some of us have read over those things our entire lives without blinking an eye. Look at that again very closely. Who sold them to their enemies? God did. In God's love, and notice I say love, in God's love for His people... He gave them over to the consequences of their sin because of their idolatry. He gave them over to the Canaanites. Now, listen, I know that raises an enormous question. And some of us are sitting here and we're going, what? I mean, I thought God was supposed to be loving. And yet, all I see here is a God that is angry and that is mean. And Jason, that's why I believe in the New Testament God. Because in the New Testament, God's loving. In the Old Testament, all I see is this mean, angry God that is making His people miserable. Before you go there, hang with me. Look at verse 9. It says that the Lord heard their cry and He raised up a deliverer to save them. And so what we see, and here's really what I want us to take away in this this second point, is that it's actually the suffering of the consequences of their sin that actually softened their heart and led them back to God. Did you see that? It was actually the suffering that God brought into their life that softened them and led them back to Him. And so here's the question, is it not possible... That a good, all-knowing, all-wise, gracious God, much like a parent does with their children, is it not possible that God could bring consequences into His people's lives that they really feel deeply for their own good? Is it not possible that God uses suffering and consequences to give you what you need and me what I need in order to grow and mature and to knock off the rough edges in our lives? The Bible says yes to both of those questions from beginning to end. The Bible says that God brings hard things in your life, things that make you extremely uncomfortable, 
And He brings them into your life to shake you out of your complacency, to soften your heart, and to actually lead you back to Him. Why? Because He loves you. And He will stop at nothing but having your whole heart completely dedicated and committed to Him. I heard an, an illustration, it's actually several years uh, old, I heard this probably three years ago, and it was by a pastor friend of mine, he's a pastor in Greenville, South Carolina now, but he's actually from Mississippi, and he tells a story about a small town in Mississippi, and there was this woman that lived there, and she had this great friend that she grew up with, and her friend actually became a Catholic nun and moved away to the other part of the country, so moved out of Mississippi and was serving as a nun in another part of our country. Well, this woman, they remained friends throughout their life, and this woman in Mississippi actually got very ill and was near death, and it actually sent word uh, to her friend who was a nun that she was getting very sick. And so the nun decides to come and to visit her. And just being a good friend, coming to someone in the time of need. And so she comes to, all the way to Mississippi, knocks on the door, and the housekeeper opens up the door and her eyes just get huge. And she says, can I help you? And the nun says, yes, you know, I'm, so-and-so's my really good friend. We've been friends for a lifetime, and I heard that she is really sick, and I have come to be with her in her time of need. Stay a while. And the housekeeper says, no, no, she's fine, she's good, what are you talking about? And the nun looks confused and says, now wait a minute, I had gotten word that she was sick, and I've driven all the way across the country, I want to see her. And the nun says, oh no, she's better now. She's way better. And then listen to what the nun, or the, the woman, the housekeeper, she steps out of the front door, steps onto the porch, true story, takes off her apron and goes, shoo, shoo, shoes her off of the porch. Well, come to find out, the housekeeper had never seen a Catholic nun before and actually thought it was the angel of death visiting her <laughs> to, to come and to take away her employer. So the nun was coming to be a friend in time of need. And the housekeeper saw that as something harmful. And here's the reason why I tell you that story. It's because God sometimes brings things to the doorstep of your life. Hard things. Painful things. He brings them to the doorstep of your life. And when you open up the door of your life and you look at that... It's easy to believe in that moment, God is out to get me. God doesn't love me anymore. God has sent that into my life in order to hurt me and maybe even kill me 
is what it feels like often in that moment. And even though that looks scary, and it is, and it's very real, God has sent that into your life as a friend to help you in your time of need. He sent that into your life as a friend to give you what you need in order to grow and to learn and to mature and to knock off the rough edges in your life. Do you believe that? How are you experiencing the consequences of your sin tonight? How are you you experiencing hardship or difficulty or trials tonight? And as you are experiencing those things, are you angry and saying, God, how could you? Or are you saying, God, I don't really know all the answers to my questions, but I know that you're a good God and that you have sent this into my life in order to make me whole in order to change me and to make me more like Jesus. Don't run from hardship. Don't run from the consequences that God sends you for your sin. Embrace them. Own them. And let God work down deep in your soul. Thirdly, we grow and change by looking. So where do we see Jesus in this story? Remember, all the Scriptures point to Jesus. He's the only hero in the Bible. And so all of Scripture points to Him. He's the center of the story. And so how does it point to Christ? Well, look back at the text. The people of Israel have been enslaved by their enemies and they come to the end of themselves. And they're forced to cry out to something outside of them in order to rescue them. And look at verse 9. God raises up a deliverer. And the word deliverer here is the Hebrew word Yeshua. It actually means Savior. And the Savior in this story, the judge, the deliverer, that God sends is a man named Othniel. And Othniel, the Spirit of the Lord comes on him and he goes into battle on behalf of the people and risks his life and leads them to victory. And if you look at the last verse, 11, peace comes over the land and on God's people for 40 years. Here's the problem though. The problem with Othniel is this. He could only temporarily save his people from their circumstances. The other problem is that he could not save them from their real problem, which was them, which was their heart. Because if you see the first verse or the next verse after, starting in verse 12, they do what's evil in the sight of the Lord again. And so you know what God does? Centuries later, he sends another Yeshua. You know, Yeshua. The Hebrew root, that's the Hebrew root behind the word Jesus. He sends Jesus into the world. And like Othniel, the Spirit of the Lord comes on Jesus. But unlike Othniel, Jesus doesn't risk His life to save His people. He actually gives His life to save His people. Unlike Othniel, He doesn't temporarily deliver His people from their circumstances, but He actually comes and saves us from ourselves. 
There's an incredible story. One of you actually, I think, sent this article to me. It's a true story. It's a, about a woman by the name of Kate Ogg from Australia. And she delivered twins prematurely at 27 weeks. Incredible story. The first twins born perfectly healthy. The second twin comes out not breathing. And the doctors performed CPR on the second. It's a, it was a boy, so her son, for 20 minutes. And after 20 minutes of CPR on this infant, the doctors pronounced her young son dead. And as you can imagine, she was distraught and grieving and mourning. And in her grieving and mourning, uh, the only thing she really wanted to do, her last request to the doctor was, can you let me hold my child so that I can grieve and mourn and say goodbye to my son? And the doctors, of course, agreed. And so they hand the baby over to the mother And as she's holding this child, all of a sudden, about five minutes in, as the child is up next to her heart, so she can hear the heartbeat, the child, and up next and can feel the warmth of her skin, about five minutes later, the baby kind of moves. And so she calls the doctors in and says, My baby moved. You know, I think this is a mistake. And the doctor said, No, 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 this baby's been pronounced dead. That's a, that's a reflex. That's totally normal. And so she continued to hold the baby and some more time passed and she heard a gasp for air. Called the doctors in. Said, I just heard my baby. It sounded like that he was gasping for air. The doctors, no, your baby's been pronounced dead. That's not possible. That's again, that's a reflex. That's kinds of things happen. Two hours later, the baby continues to get stronger and stronger and stronger. And then all of a sudden, he opens his eyes. This is a true story. Opens his eyes and grabs her finger. He's now a perfectly healthy child. Here's why I tell you that. It's because I think it's such an incredible picture of how we grow. Here's what I mean. Some of you tonight have walked into this room and you're extremely discouraged. Maybe you feel lifeless or sluggish spiritually speaking. Or you're discouraged because you've longed so so much to grab on to Jesus in faith and really take off spiritually and grow. Or maybe you're disappointed because the New Year's resolutions that you've made a month ago... You've already blown. And so you're discouraged and disappointed. Or maybe you're bringing shame into this room and you're wearing it. Shame for something you've done or that's been done to you or maybe that you're currently doing. And our knee-jerk reaction, my knee-jerk reaction, when we bump up against those things in our life, our reaction is, i got to try harder i got to get to work. And i got to be a better person. And so we start doing all kinds of things. Uh, seven steps to a better life. Or looking for some silver bullet that we can lock onto that's going to finally make our life 
take off and be better. But what do we really need? Because I've tried all those things. You know what we need more than anything? We need to get near to Jesus. Like this mother and her young child, we need to let Jesus pull us close, as close as He possibly can, and we need to stay there. Because when we stay there at the feet of Jesus, close to Jesus, here's what happens. We start getting stronger and stronger and stronger, and then all of a sudden, we start to show signs of spiritual life. Because when we're captivated with Jesus, the sin and the idols that easily entangle us begin to melt away from our hearts because we're captivated with Him, because we're captivated with the One that has not only risked His life, but has given His life. And He's given His life in order to free you from your sin and from your despair. Friends, that is what empowers change. When that melts us, it empowers change. You cannot change you. I can't change me. Our only hope is that we would give up hope in everything else. And we would run as fast as we can into the arms of Jesus, into our wonderful, beautiful Savior, and we would stay there. And when we stay there and stop relying on ourselves, we'll start to grow and spiritual life will start to take place in our heart. Let's pray. Father, I thank You